I am pleased, delighted, and honored to be joined by the New York Times writer and New York Times bestselling author, Robert Draper. Robert, how are you, sir? doing fine. Thanks so much for having me, Tavis. It's a great honor to have you on. Thank you for your time. Glad we got the hour. A whole lot in this book to unpack. Let me start by asking this question. I've done this a number of times, obviously, over the course of my uh, many years in broadcast, but I've never had a chance to ask this particular question. Uh, I think you'll indulge me. So what's it like being a New York Times writer and a New York Times bestselling author, Robert Draper? It's pretty nice. Uh, <laughs> I won't lie. Uh, the, um, you know, the, the, but the fix is not in, believe me. I mean, I've, uh, I've written for the New York Times for many years. I've also published books, uh, including books I'm really proud of uh, during that period of time that didn't make the list. And um, so, you know, I've, um, it's, uh, it's an honor above all to, to write a book that is important, um, that people seem to recognize the importance of. And I do think that this book came out at a fortuitous time um, when the nation is, you know, is, properly focused on uh, the frailty of our democratic institutions and um, whether one of our two major political parties is on board with protecting those institutions. Yep, we talk often around here, indeed, we talked yesterday a bit about the fragility of our democracy, and I suspect we'll get into some uh, more of that conversation with you today. Um, and I didn't mean to suggest by the question that, fix is an end, uh, that the fix was in, I'm just, I just thought it was cute um, sure. uh, to be a, a New York Absolutely. Times reporter and also to be a New York Times best-selling author. It's a good thing, and I ain't mad at you. Everybody can't do it. Uh, let, let me start with this. Um, one of the things that's clear to me in the reading of your text is, and you're pretty transparent about this, and we'll talk about why this is, but just uh, for starters, uh, you make it clear that you have never seen it this ugly. In all the years you've been covering this stuff, you've never seen it this ugly. And and that, 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 that sentiment jumps out at me because there have been some really, really ugly chapters in this nation's history. So this may be as ugly as you have seen it, but how would you situate the ugliness of this contemporary moment? Sure. I mean, I, I think that what is particularly concerning, Tavis, is not just that um, the two parties uh, uh, are so polarized. Mm -hmm. It's not just that the Republican Party has embraced extreme elements um, from the far right. That is concerning enough. But I think that, that what's particularly problematic insofar as um, we look at the future of American democracy it's how tens of millions of Americans now believe lies that were uh, peddled to them by Republican office holders, beginning with the sitting president, but by no means limited to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And um, and and those those beliefs, which I describe as delusions in the title as well as in the book, persist to this day. I mean, it, it, it it's not like someone has flipped a switch after the November midterms, for example. And um, and caused tens of millions of Americans who have spent the last two years believing that Biden stole the presidency from Trump, that now all of a sudden they believe, well, actually, I, I, I must have gotten it wrong. <laughs> uh, no, they, they, they still do believe that. They believe adjacent lies as well, among them that the January 6th insurrection was take your pick either a tourist event or um, uh, an FBI, <laughs> Antifa, Nancy Pelosi setup. Um, as well, uh, the lie that COVID vaccines are, take your pick, either um, ineffectual or murderous or perhaps even uh, some Chinese mind control plot. And, and, and you know, I, I, I'd make light of this if, if it were a laughing matter, but it's not. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there are people who believe these things and they believe them because um, they inhabit 
uh, an ecosystem um, where this is all they hear, not just from their information sources, but also from their elected office holders, from their political influencers, and for that matter, from their pastors. So, um, so that that to me is why more than more than any other reason we've never seen it this bad. Mm. Um, in this book, um, you also make it clear that this is a new breed of Republicans. You were talking about uh, the followers. We'll talk about the followers in this hour, I, I promise you. But I want to talk for a moment here about the leaders. I'll let you run the list. Um, the names are all in the book, and you you don't hold back in describing um, and identifying specifically who you're talking about. I hate books that describe people but won't identify them. You've done both. You've called them out by name. And I guess the, the, the question uh, to start us down this path is, to your mind, what spawned this new breed of Republicans? And again, you can call them by name if you wish. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, let's focus um, on one character of great interest in my book, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm-hmm. Um, you use the word, you know, leaders, and, and, and probably, Tavis, she has become a leader of the Republican Party. No one, including myself, thought that would have been the case when she ran, um, you know, this uh, rich suburban conservative from um, from uh, the uh, suburbs of metropolitan Atlanta for Congress in 2020. Uh, um, she was somebody, Green was, who was a QAnon conspiracy adherent. And so when, through a succession of improbabilities, she managed to pull off a victory, the, the, the wide thinking amongst you know, Washingtonians was that she would be kind of pushed to the margins, you know, the sort of um, Star Wars bar of American politics, if you will. That didn't happen. It's, um, uh, she became one of the biggest fundraisers on, on Capitol Hill. Uh, she has, uh, because she is viewed by the MAGA base of the Republican Party as the proxy to Donald Trump uh, inside Capitol Hill, uh, she commands enormous influence and leadership. And now that has been manifested in um, Kevin McCarthy, who is likely to be the Speaker of the House, though it's by no means certain, uh, that in him awarding her Plum Committee assignments, Having her sit in on uh, you know policy meetings, so that's so that's who Green is and and um, uh, and the position of influence that she wields. But to your question of where did she come from, I mean that's a, that's a complicated question. But I but I suppose the answer to it is that um, as we become a society, Tavis, that has become not just more polarized but more insulated from those groups we disagree with, um, in part because of what sociologists have called the big sort, which is that, you know, we move into neighborhoods, not just with people who you know look like us, but people who think like us. Mm-hmm. But um, we also now um, can pick what information, you know, sources we want. We don't have to rely just on the local newspaper or on Walter Cronkite or something. I mean, it's and uh, but as a result of that, um, we have this new breed who've grown up in this bubble, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of them. I, I'm not quite certain that Greene has ever met um, a Democrat before. I can tell you for certain, as someone who spent a great deal of time with Marjorie Taylor Greene, that she had never done an interview with a member of the mainstream media before she sat down with me. And, mm-hmm. and in the end, she did many interviews with me. But, it's, but I say all this by way of saying that these are people who, who, um, who grew up not knowing any other way other than the way that they embrace. And they have come to believe that that way, that America as they know it, is being chipped away from them bit by bit and is becoming unrecognizable. And this, of course, was the kind of grievance politics yeah. that Donald Trump ran on. So Green has become, uh, she, she started out as a cheerleader for Trump, um, uh, seeing Trump uh, 
for a series of bizarre reasons as, you know, a working class hero and uh, and then ultimately became a kind of mimic of Trump. And I, I bring up Marty Taylor Greene, but she is by no means alone. She is just sort of a case in point yeah. of this phenomenon. Just getting started in this hour in conversation with The New York Times, uh, Robert Draper. His book is called Weapons of Mass Delusion. When the Republican Party lost its mind, a great deal more to talk about when we come forward. Uh, not the least of which is I'm curious as to why, to his mind, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene agreed to talk to him uh, not just once, but multiple times. Why would she even do that? Uh, that and a great deal more when we come forward with Robert Draper on KBLA Talk 1580. This is indeed a conversation that matters, and I'm pleased to be in it with Robert Draper, a New York Times uh, writer uh, and author of the new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. I wasn't being uh, facetious at all, uh, Robert, uh, a moment ago when I said that uh, I'm curious as to why you think uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene would talk to you not once, uh, but multiple times. And I'm, I'm, what I'm getting at is there seems to me to be a level of arrogance uh, in, in not being even afraid to talk to mainstream media outlets uh, and, to, and to just, you know, to, to just double down on these outrageous beliefs. So that's my read of it. You tell me why you think she talked to you so many times. Sure. Well, before I answer it, um, uh, Tavis, I will say that it is true that there's a powerful disincentive to talk to mainstream media outlets, not only because um, they've been roundly demonized by not only Marjorie Taylor Greene, but her MAGA supporters, but also because why go to them when you can go to these friendly stenographers on the right um, in the form of Breitbart or Gateway Pundit, who will just faithfully uh, take down whatever exactly. whatever you say to them. Exactly. Right, right. But the an- yeah, but the answer to your question is it um, it didn't happen overnight. In fact, it took a year and and uh, and and a full year during which time I um, showed up at Green's public events. I began showing up at her district. Then I started meeting staffers of hers and talking to them. And I think they decided over time that that. Uh, um, that I was approaching this seriously, that I was trying to um, come to Green's neck of the woods, as it were, non-judgmentally, but just trying to understand um, who she is, why she believes what she believes. And all of that ultimately led then in February of this year to my first interview with her, which was off the record. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we talked for like a couple of hours or so. And I think, you know, given that I was the first New York Times writer she'd ever met before, she was probably stunned to learn that not only did I not appear to be emitting sulfur fumes, but um, <laughs> that you know I've I've got a southern accent like she does. You know, yeah. I'm from Texas, and and uh, and and I think that you know it was a real brain twister for her that um, that it was basically you know innocuous insofar as I was asking her serious questions and uh, giving her the opportunity to answer them seriously, and then agreeing not to publish them, just to use this as a getting to know you. That in turn led to a succession of interviews. And over time, um, you know, Green stopped bringing staffers along. It would be just me and her. And, and, uh, and, and you know, look, I, um, the truth is uh, there, there's a lot in, in my book that she obviously, you know, understandably dislikes. Um, uh, but, but I take her seriously. I mean, and I take her seriously because she's got a lot of influence in the Republican Party. And, yeah. and I think that readers would do well to take her seriously, too. So insofar as I did do that, 
and kept my promise in doing that. She still talks to me to this day. Yep. To your point about taking them seriously, I'm glad you went there because I wanted to uh, uh, follow up on that with this. Uh, and that is whether or not uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and there are others you talk about in the book, uh, Paul Gosar, uh, Matt Getz, Lauren Boebert, Madison mm-hmm. Cawthorn. There is a group of these outrageous, to my mind, outrageous and rabid Republicans who I think are are leading our country in the wrong direction, but that's just me. The question is, to your, your invoking of the word uh, seriously, whether or not this is just a, a, a band of rebels or whether or not they represent a true, uh, uh, a clear and present danger to our democracy. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, that was the question I asked myself as I was beginning the book, Tavis. You know, if, um, is, is Green just a marginal character who represents, you know, a... Um, uh, largely rural, non-college educated, white, working class congressional district, one of 435? Mm-hmm. Or is there any, anything more to her than that? And I came to learn over time as I would see her um, travel out of state and give speeches to audiences well beyond Georgia and would see as well when I'd go by her office how the walls were festooned with letters, hundreds of letters. Um, they're fan letters, but they're not from her district. They're from everywhere. They're from California. They're from Maine. Uh, and uh, it, it became clear to me then that she actually does have a national movement. Now, th- there's a there's a separate question about whether or not she, Gates, Gosar, Bobert, and the others are serious. Uh, you know, the, it's um, uh, or are they just performance artists? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, I think the question that's been asked me about um, Green to me and, and and regarding these others more than anything else. Tavis is is uh, is it all an act, mm-hmm. uh, or does she really believe this stuff, this outrageous stuff? And and my answer to that is that she believes enough of it. But she also recognizes the value of hyperbole because uh, the shriller and the more crazy you can sound, the more you benefit in the political attention economy, the more online donations you get, the more of a social media following you amass. And those things in turn um, actually uh, translate into real influence on Capitol Hill. So she believes a lot of this stuff. She doesn't, I mean, like she, you know, she said the other day, uh, that um, if she and Steve Bannon had been in charge of uh, the insurrection on January the 16th, uh, January the 6th, they would have won and they would have used uh, weapons, too. Mm. And uh, and she now says that she was just kidding. But um, at the time that she delivered that to a right wing group in New York, um, no one was laughing. They were applauding wildly. So, you know, this is, you know, Green knows what she's doing here. Yeah. I mean, that's a, an extremely provocative thing to say. She was rewarded in the immediate. But to your broader question of do these people pose a threat, um, you're damn right they do. You know, if, if uh, when uh, when they say something as provocative, as dangerous as that, and saying that they're just doing it with a wink and a nod, but no one else is in on the joke, yeah. then that's dangerous. I, I think my use, I've been uh, processing this for the last 10 seconds at least, I think my use of the word dwindling uh, might be correct, but it, it might not be. I'm, I'm rethinking my own formulation of the question I want to ask you now, but let me ask it. Um, I think there is a dwindling group of Republicans who are willing to push back against the falsehoods that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others advance every day. I say I think because uh, on this side of the midterms, I'm not sure if there may be one or two others somewhere down the road who will find a spine and start to, to stand up and speak up. But if I'm right about the fact there's a dwindling group of uh, GOP members who are willing to stand up courageously and push back against this nonsense, how do you read that? I don't. I don't see it actually, Tavis. I mean, I. Uh, you know, this, this is the same. What you're saying makes sense. But it's the same sentiment that we heard after January the 6th, mm-hmm. when Republicans were roundly condemning what took place at the Capitol, roundly condemning uh, Trump's role in it, 
Then they went home. Then they went home to their constituents and realized their constituents, who are still marinating in all of this right-wing media ecosystem stuff, um, in fact, still have Trump's back. And that's the case now, too. So, so we actually have not seen anybody taking on Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and um, quite the contrary, we're seeing Greene amassing more and more power. Yeah. And in the meantime, there are people even to the right of Marjorie Taylor Greene who, when all is said and done, is supporting – um, a semi-mainstream person to be speaker, Kevin McCarthy, she's got people to her right saying that's outrageous. We should, you know, uh, we should petition to make sure that McCarthy is never made speaker and we should have a total right winger, maybe even Donald Trump, become speaker of the House instead. So it's um, so now I, I have not yet mm. seen the counter movement um, in the wake of the midterms take place. I got about a minute and a half here before news traffic and sports will continue on the other side. But uh, how did you read the relative lack of silence the relative silence, actually, not lack of the relative silence um, that uh, that accompanied uh, Donald Trump suggesting that the Constitution ought to be <laughs> ought to be pushed aside. Yeah, no, you're correct that there were some people on the Senate and one or two people from the House who said, well, I certainly don't subscribe to that. But by and large, no one wants to stand up to Donald Trump and the Republican Party, because when you do so, you're inviting him to take his howitzer to you. Mm -hmm. You know, they may um, uh, they may disagree with some of with Trump's lies, but they will not take him on personally because they do not want to incur the wrath of Trump. They have seen that happen. That person's name is Liz Cheney, and they do not want to go the way of Liz Cheney, who no longer has an office to occupy yeah. as a result of her clashing with Trump. What Robert Draper is getting at in this book is how we are going to perform on uh, what he would call a fearful test of our ability as a country to hold together a system of government grounded in truth and the rule of law. That's the question that all of us as fellow citizens uh, have to face. Um, and uh, I'm curious on the other side uh, how he fears, uh, how he feels rather about um, how we're going to end up. What kind of greater we going to end up getting as a nation uh, on this test of our ability as a nation to, to hold a system together that's rooted in some kind of truth. Uh, some sense of respect for the rule of law. That and a great deal more with Robert Draper, author of, the, author of the book Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. You're listening to Robert Draper on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you with us in this hour. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. Our guest in this hour is New York Times writer and New York Times bestselling author Robert Draper. His latest is Weapons of mass delusion when the Republican Party lost its mind. I was saying, Robert, before news traffic and sports, that what you're essentially getting us to wrestle with is whether or not we are are able to pass this test of our ability as a nation to sort of hold together some system of governance that is grounded, that's rooted in truth, that's rooted in the rule of law. Uh, and um, obviously, uh, it's not test time as yet. And again, again maybe it is. Um, but but what's, what's your sense of how we're doing in that regard? Well, I mean, not well. Uh, our, our political system depends on the health of two viable political parties. That's just kind of the way we're set up. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them, as I mentioned both to you and to the title, uh, has taken leave of the census. I mean, there's and and um, and relies on the support of a base that um, believes lies that have been promoted within the conservative community. Uh, I don't know how that 
gets flushed out of the system. I mean, again, you know, and we were kind of glancingly talking about this a few minutes ago, Tavis, that um, in the wake of the 2022 midterms, which didn't turn out so well for Republicans, a lot of Republicans are wishfully thinking, well, then maybe, you know, um, the rest of us in our party will get tired of losing. And mm-hmm. we'll say, you know, um, whatever else you think about Donald Trump, electorally speaking, he's a loser. Mm-hmm. People don't like him. And, and, and it is certainly true that the general election electorate, given the opportunity to express its disdain for Donald Trump, has done so again and again and again. But when it comes to Republican primary politics, um, the Republicans still love the guy. And, and, um, and we see that reflected in recent polls indicating that Republicans, more Republicans want to see Donald Trump run for president than Democrats want to see Joe Biden run mm. for president. So if, if you, uh, you know, if, if you predicate the health of our democracy on um, two viable parties, one of whom has, uh, continues to have as its party leader someone who has essentially made it his business to destroy democratic institutions, then I'd say that for the moment we're not doing so well. Yep. Let me pivot right quick, uh, Robert. We'll come back. Just a quick pivot. You think that the reality you just laid out uh, is a crack in the door for finally a viable third party in this country? I I don't think so. I mean, for one thing, the question for the third party would be, Who's going to do it? You know, like the establishment, K-Street Republicans have said to me over and over, look, it's our damn party. You know, that's, we're not abandoning this to the nut jobs and going to form our own. We, This is our party. Let them go do that. So I don't know who would split off. I guess there is an argument to be made. I've seen it made that maybe Donald Trump, if he's rejected by enough Republicans, um, will take his football and move over to create a third party, which in all likelihood won't win but can wreck the party for everybody else. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that you know there there hasn't been any kind of viable option as a third party in well over a century, uh, and I think that we've become even more calcified mm-hmm. in our um, in having a two party system. It's a shame because I think that both parties have failed Americans on many levels, yeah. and it'd be great to see one of them rise up. But I don't see it happening. As I said, I love the book's title, uh, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Um, but to my mind, uh, pardon the pun, it's, it's, it's more than just Donald Trump. Um, so the, the question, and I know we sure. can spend hours just on this one question, um, but in a nutshell, what happened to the Republican Party? Because, again, it ain't just Donald Trump. What happened to the party? That's right. How did they lose their mind? Yeah, no, that's a, it's a great point, Tavis, because you often hear people say, well, Donald Trump hijacked the Republican Party. I've always detested um, that metaphor because it presupposes that the airplane that got hijacked, the Republican Party, was a perfectly functioning vessel beforehand and bore absolutely no responsibility for it being hijacked, neither of which is the case. Mm-hmm. There, you know, what Donald, just to take an example, Donald Trump saying that the election was stolen plays to a sentiment that I've been hearing for decades and decades and decades, which is that even mainstream Republicans will say as an article of faith, the Democrats cheat to win. And we know what they what, what they're saying when they say this, because they're always referring to inner cities and the cheating that takes place there. And essentially what they're saying is that um, that that black Americans, that their votes can be bought and have been bought. And they say this without any evidence at all. Um, but um, but it has become 
an article of faith. Again, I, you know, I talk to establishment Republicans all the time who say, well, you know, Donald Trump, crazy stuff he was saying, but it is true that Democrats cheat. So, so, so uh, Trump was buying into pre-existing notions um, that, that Republicans have had for some time. He did, you're exactly right that he did not invent a lot of what we now see as Trumpism, um, he only exacerbated it, only stirred the pot that much more. But yeah. it was there before, the pot was there before he arrived. There are two or three, two or three things you said earlier, Robert, that I just didn't get a chance to follow up on, but I want to before I get too, uh, too far afield. Um, you've mentioned Kevin McCarthy's name by my count at least three times in this conversation, and I am where you are, and for that matter, I think most people are where you are. Uh, it is not at the moment a foregone conclusion that he's going to be elected speaker. Uh, handicap for me either way what it means for these persons who've lost their mind that you talk about in the text, uh, this band of rebels, what does it mean for them uh, if McCarthy does in fact become speaker or does not in fact become speaker? If he does become speaker, he will be so beholden to this band of rebels, as you're putting it, that uh, he's going to have to ask their permission before he uses the restroom. I Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, he's operating on so small a margin of victory anyway I and mean, he'll you know it's it'll be like a four seat majority or something like that mm-hmm. that he's going to have to placate every single one of those extreme elements in the party um just to get anything done including to stay on as speaker now if he does not um uh succeed as speaker it begs the question who will i mean they, you know the um he already has outsmarted the far right because they don't have a viable candidate um to to uh to offer in in place of mccarthy all they can do really is burn the house down by the way this will work is on january the 3rd 2023 um there'll be a vote for speaker somebody's got to get 218 votes if kevin mccarthy doesn't get that then um then uh, both parties uh go into deliberation they come back and they vote again and it this can go on endlessly and there'll be a lot of horse trading going on and it may well be that McCarthy will be the guy left standing but he'll have to cut so many deals mm. that he will essentially have neutered his speakership before it's even begun yep um you mentioned past <clears throat> pastors earlier in this conversation and were some of these uh mm-hmm. Uh, folk on the right are getting this narrative from. Uh, I don't need to color this question much more than this. This is a smart audience, and we've been talking about this kind of stuff. But what do you make of the fact that these white evangelicals uh, have just kind of held their nose? I mean, if anybody's lost their mind, they've lost their mind, to my mind, as much as Marjorie Taylor Greene has, uh, justifying every single thing about Donald Trump that runs contrary to the things they preach every Sunday morning. Yeah, it's a remarkable phenomenon, and I've, I've attributed less to delusional thinking than to uh, stone-cold cynicism, mm. you know, because uh, uh, Trump's, you know, Trump, who actually, I think, empirically is not that great a deal-maker, um, cut an excellent deal with the evangelicals. It was basically that, look, you know, I'll give you everything you want. I'll uh, move um, Israel's capital to Jerusalem. I'll uh, give you some far-right uh, federal judge, uh, federal judges who, you know, support uh, uh, restrictions on abortion, support restricting the right to vote. I'll give you everything you want. You know, it's um, uh, just give me your vote. And so it was pure transactional behavior. You're, you're certainly right. That it um, that it's remarkable to see someone like Donald Trump, um, uh, one of the least religious people to to enter, uh, least Christian people to enter into the White House, now being viewed as a latter day King David by mm-hmm. these evangelicals. Yeah. But again, you know they've uh, uh, they they cut a good deal. When we come forward, uh, because he discusses it uh, uh, in the book so so uh, so powerfully. 
Uh, it's actually prescient the way he sort of gets at this. I want to ask Robert Draper in a moment um, about these conspiracy theories. Um, what fuels these conspiracy theories on the right? What fuels them? And moreover, why are folk on the right so susceptible to them? We'll put that question and more to Robert Draper, author of the book Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. It used to be, Robert Draper, that we would uh, question authority in this country, uh, question authority. We moved from that to conspiracy theories. And I'm curious, uh, given your research, what you learned about why. You laid a bunch of them out earlier in this conversation. You listed a number of them. What, what fuels these conspiracy theories specifically on the right? And why are folk on the right so susceptible to them? Yeah, that's um, distrust and fear, I think, are, are the, is the thumbnail sketch of why this happens, Tavis. And to break it down briefly, uh, um, the people on the right have come to um, distrust uh, a lot of democratic institutions, uh, not only the federal government, but the media as well. And, uh, and a lot of them who fell in love with Donald Trump uh, came further to distrust the media because, after all, Trump called us fake news and said that we were lying about the quote-unquote Russia collusion, uh, collusion hoax. Mm-hmm. That, in turn, you know, gave them the avenue to pursue alternative um, information sources, which led them down these rabbit holes where they found, among other things, the QAnon conspiracy theory. And what was appealing about this theory? Because it answered a basic fear and belief that they already embraced, which was that um, the other side was incorrigibly evil. It wasn't just that Democrats or liberals or whatever are wrongheaded or even immoral. It's that they are bent on destroying America. It's that they are um, essentially um, children of Lucifer. And mm-hmm. it's that kind of existentialist language. It's, it's, it's viewing um, the political landscape in this sort of uh, the kind of stakes that one would find in a holy war um, that you see um, uh, giving rise to these conspiracy theories. And even uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who now disavows QAnon, still basically believes that Democrats are evil, still believes, for example, that um, that Nancy Pelosi is godless, even though Nancy Pelosi is a devout Catholic. I asked Green, you know, how can you believe that? And she said, well, because she supports no restrictions on abortion, which is untrue. But regardless, to therefore say that that means that she has to be godless, um, it, it plays into these conspiracy theories, even when the conspiracy theories themselves go away. They have an underpinning um, that people buy into because they basically believe that the other side is evil. Speaking of the other side, I, I warned you, uh, Robert Draper, now that you can't handle it, but I'm about to throw you a curveball. So get ready. Here comes a curveball. Um, <laughs> speaking of the other side, I'm wondering uh, whether or not there is anything to your mind uh, and even your research for this book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, when the Republican Party lost its mind, is there anything that the Democratic Party has done or not done to ferment, to seed this particular situation? Well, I think that they haven't taken the problem seriously, uh, up until the insurrection at least, um, because they also just viewed, you know, when Hillary Clinton called uh, Trump supporters um, a basket full of deplorables. Mm-hmm. Essentially, she was dismissing them. And you can, you, know, you can disagree vehemently with individuals, but to not try to understand where they're coming from and to just assume that they will simply go away um, is, I think, ill-advised. And I'm not saying necessarily 
that you become a doormat um, to these individuals, but it's important to understand them. And uh, even if you can't communicate them, to learn, you know, where they're coming from um, so that you can, you can be braced for the recognition that there will be tens of millions of people um, who simply don't believe in the truth as you know it to be. It's, that's, you know, and, and it's for that reason that, after all, thousands upon thousands of people came to the United States Capitol on January the 6th. They really believed that we were, you know, that, that this was a call to arms by the president, that the republic was shuddering, that um, the election had been stolen, and that something had to be done about it on that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most Americans weren't aware that this sort of thing was going to transpire because they frankly just believed that, that you know, Trump is a crazy guy who was trying to con everybody into believing that he won the election when he lost and that people would eventually get over it. Um, they haven't gotten over it because they subscribe to, as uh, Kellyanne Conway once put it, alternative facts. Yeah. And, uh, and it's important for us to recognize um, the implications of that for our democracy. I think the exit question when we come forward with Robert Draper is simply this. Um, he, he argues in the book, as the t- subtitle suggests, uh, that the Republican Party has lost its mind. Um, just because you go off the range doesn't mean you can't come back. Doesn't mean that we can't find some medication or something to help you uh, get your mind right. And, and that's what I want to ask Robert Draper in our remaining moments, whether or not he senses any, uh, if there's any reason to believe that they can or will in the coming months and years get their mind right. Uh, Robert Draper is our guest on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Let's unpack a little bit more with Robert Draper, author of the book Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. I, I asked a moment ago, Robert, whether or not uh, uh, they can get their mind right. Put another way, does it get worse before it gets better, or do we keep going down this rabbit hole? Well, it could get worse before it gets better. That's certainly the case. I mean, the, the violent rhetoric um, uh, concerns me, and it continues, and it will continue after Trump. I mean, we have to be mindful of the fact, Tavis, that this really is akin to a personality cult. And um, and if we need any reminder, we can look actually to just a few minutes ago uh, when Donald Trump's um, people just released a digital trading card collection in which Trump appears as a cowboy, a spaceman, and a superhero. <laughs> but there actually are, um, and they have reason to believe that there are millions of people who will buy these trading cards of a former president, um, goes to show you how cult-like this is. And, and any cult requires a kind of deprogramming and the deprogramming, especially when it is en masse, when we're not talking about 20 people, yeah. but we're talking about millions of people, takes a great deal of time. The only thing that I can say, you know, is that um, uh, that doesn't require that everyone else in America um, uh, coddle uh, these individuals who, who believe so fervently in Donald Trump and who have been sold a pack of lies, mm-hmm. but also not to completely give up on them either. Yeah. You know, that, that, um, that the hope has to be uh, that as a democracy, that, um, that people will come around and that people are more than the sum total of their mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but this is going to be a slog. This is not an overnight proposition. Like uh, Donald Trump, I lied. Um, this is the, the, the real exit question. <laughs> I lied about that being the final yeah. question. I got 60 seconds left here. Um, to your point about cult of personality, if Donald Trump miraculously, mysteriously disappeared tomorrow, so there is no longer a cult of his personality, what would happen to the GOP? 
um, the GOP would find some other version of Donald Trump because Trumpism works as a political proposition. Uh, it's hard to convince people who dislike you to like you, uh, to expand your tent, as it were. It's a lot easier to make the people who like you love you and then to demonize everybody else. That is the pathway that Trump has shown the Republican Party, and it's very, very likely that someone else is going to try that, whether they succeed on the level that Trump um, did remains to be seen. But that is a playbook that's not going to go away after Trump goes away. He's a wonderful writer, a towering public intellectual, and the author of the new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion. When the Republican Party lost its mind, he is Robert Draper. Robert, thank you for this great conversation. Thank you for the text. Happy holidays, my friend. We'll do it again.